0: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the bonus series, I guess, of uh, Nonsense and Noise podcast. Um, I haven't decided what I'm going to call this quite yet, but um, this is only going to live behind the paywall, um, just because (laughs) this episode is definitely me doing a lot of emotional labor. Um, So, or like talking specifically about my experiences and my my family's experiences, and that is really, um, I'm not doing that for free. Let's just say that. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for uh, subscribing to the Patreon. Because you're, he- if you're hearing this, that means you're a subscriber. Um, so, thank you very much for your support of me um, and this project that I've been working on. Um, I'm I'm just really thankful that you guys are are supporting me in and this this hobby and just like getting to talk about like video games and pop culture, movies, um, eventually books. Um, yeah, just really thankful that you guys are, uh, really just curious about my perspective and want to listen to me talk about shit. Um, nobody's ever wanted me to just kidding, people wanted me to talk about shit. Um, but, yeah, no, once again, thank you so much for, um, your support on the Patreon, it means a lot. Um, I am currently, uh, it's, it's Wednesday, March 23rd, I'm actually (laughs) re-recording this episode because, like, I... Thought I was gonna do this like kind of loosey goosey, um, like I normally do, but uh, I version one of the record was really just um, rough and not necessarily like emotionally rough. It was just like bad rough. Um, so I actually like did made a pretty robust outline, um, and I'm I'm ready to go. So I'm I'm re-recording this. Um, but otherwise, I am trying to like. Maintain a better sleep schedule. I was talking with my personal trainer um, a couple weeks ago about like diet and like working out and other things. And he was just like, Oh, yeah, no, sleep is a really important part of, um, you know, getting your ideal body. And I was like, Oh, shit, that's good to know. And he's like, Yeah. And I'm like, Yeah. Cause I like regularly only get like six hours on average, um, which isn't great, um, it was doable, I survived on six hours of sleep at night in college, um, but that was, uh, started, I started college over 10 years ago, um, so I can't, I can't do that anymore, I, like, I'm almost 30, I can't, I can't survive on six hours of sleep anymore, I need to, like, step it up, so, um, yeah, I've been, like, trying to do that, but of course, like, making sure that I'm sleeping well means that, like, my social life is taken just, like, it's just, like, non-existent, um, I went out for dinner with a friend last week, um, and it was really nice to, like, and really cool to do, sort of, like, a weeknight hang, because, like, I don't really do that, um, normally I'm kind of a weekend hang kind of dude, but, um, yeah, this, this time was a, a weeknight hang, and it was on Tuesday, and it was a nice way to, like, break up the week, so, like, Obviously, there are benefits um, to doing that, but of course, like we were out until like nine, and I was like, I gotta go because uh, I gotta go home and go to bed. Um, and it was fine because my friend was like, I totally get it. Um, uh, they are a new lawyer, and so they're like constantly just super busy. And I was just like, Can you make time for me? Or not, I didn't ask that. They were just like, um, I've got time. Um, this coming week, do you want to get dinner, like, yeah, let's do it, um, so, yeah, that's the main reason why I got, um, dinner on a Tuesday night, but, uh, yeah, like, I, I don't have a social life, I haven't, like, hung out with people during the week, just because I'm just, like, a lot of friends, um, are on the west coast or like not in the same time zone as me and so i'm just like well that's great uh like by the time you're ready to hang out and it's like you're six o'clock it's my nine o'clock and i have to get ready for bed so um yeah i've just been like <laughs> socially isolated but playing a lot of pokemon legends Arceus. um and i have a perfect deck entries for like an embarrassing number of pokemon um i almost have 200 hours in that game because it's just like so easy to just zone out and like pour hours into that game, and suddenly I look up and I'm just like, oh, I should probably eat, like, I should have eaten, like, maybe two hours ago, but whatever, um, but otherwise, I'm doing all right, um, certainly, like, always look forward to the weekends, and the weekends just, like, blow right by, and it's, yeah, it's, weekends aren't long enough, but then again, that's, like, nothing new, um, yeah, so, uh, that's how I am and uh, I think with that, this is this is gonna be super like not super loose episode because I do have a very good outline of what I want to talk about, but. This episode, <laughs> because it's hiding behind the paywall, um, is gonna be Gonzo style. <laughs> We're gonna... There's no editing. I am um, not making sex noises for an hour, uh, just because that's, that's not the type of Gonzo style this is. Um, but yeah, this is gonna be, like, less polished than what I normally put out, so you're gonna hear lots more filler, and just, like, whatever. Um, but, you know, that's the privilege you get of listening to stuff behind the paywall. Um, So with that kind of warning, I guess, um, I'm going to take a break, and then we'll come back with the main content. All right, we're back from the break. Um, Because this is the bonus content and premium, uh, peek behind the curtain, I ate some dinner um, and was watching... British, Great British Bake Off, and I feel like, (sighs) every time I watch Bake Off, I'm just like, I feel like the Brits are really not the people who should be judging flavors, like, who decided it was a good idea to give, like, a baking show that features, like, oh, like, make something that tastes good, like, whose idea was it, like, we're gonna give it to the Brits, because, I mean, okay, I will say, the only, the only part of British cuisine that is, like, worth eating is dessert so like it's fine um ultimately it's fine but yeah sometimes the judges are like and this is too spicy and i'm like your ancestors fought for spices um so use them uh okay but anyways that's my great <laughs> that's my gripe with bake-off um okay so we're gonna get right into it um so as a reminder the topic for this bonus episode is the Japanese American concentration camps during World War II. Um for context my last podcast episode I talked about um, at the end during the what's your nonsense um what's your nonsense uh segment I touched on um sort of the the Russophobia that is going through both, like, the U.S. and the rest of the world right now, and it just kind of seems very misplaced, because, like, the person committing and, like, ordering the war um, from Russia is Putin, and not, like, the Russian people themselves. They don't support the war. Um, like, this is very unpopular. Um and that's demonstrated not only by the people in Russia protesting, but also, like, a lot of the Russian troops are, like, defecting and, like, taking the earliest opportunity just to just, like, leave the army. Um, but the rest of the world, um, and especially, like, the United States we seem to just be taking this like weird stance of oh does that sound russian i'm going to take it out like i'm not going to i'm not going inter- to interact with that so like you get bullshit like oh there was a an orchestra that had a concert and they're were, like we're canceling our concert because we were playing a tchaikovsky piece um and of course the irony there is like tchaikovsky has strong ties to ukraine so it's like gotcha like i don't know that like uh, and also like what is canceling a concert like is that directly helping the russian pe like the ukrainian people i don't think so um and then uh the other example that i could think of that i like saw recently was the wisconsin museum of mustard or something like that decided to remove the russian mustards from display in support and solidarity for ukraine i'm just like what is that doing? Like, all of these little things that people are doing, um, like, PayPal pulling out of Russia and, like, a lot of businesses, like, withdrawing from Russia, like, the business part I can kind of understand because, like, that is how the elite in Russia are making money, Um, but, like, some of it is also, like, this doesn't make any sense. It's not helping the Ukrainians. It's not helping, like, it's not directly helping people. Um, and so a lot of those gestures feel empty, but, like, I noticed at least when all of this started and there just was this immediate uptick in Russophobia and, like, all of this sort of weird nonsense it was just like, we've been here before. Um, and we're, we're here right now with, like, Sinophobia or, like, Anti-Chinese sentiments because there, that's like it's baked into um, media programming. It's baked into like how the average person sees China due to a lot of news messaging, um, and that's really <coughs> excuse me. That's really sort of like where we see all these biases come through is in the news and how reporters choose to talk about these countries so every time there's something going on with china <clears throat> there's this like selection of language that is othering and makes it seem like china's a bad actor um <clears throat> and then same thing of course with like coverage of the pandemic um like i know i saw a post about like a chicago newspaper covering um the arrival of the BA to uh Omicron sub variant in the United States. Um and the picture was not the picture that they used was not um, you know, from Chicago. It was probably a picture from somewhere in East Asia and like, you know, further solidifying the case of hey this is a virus that came from asian people like specifically east asian people um and perpetuating xenophobia and just like anti-asian racism and like we've been here before um this was the definitely the case during world war Two with all of the anti-japanese sentiments and like i said this is this whole episode is talking about all of the stuff that led up to it, what actually happened, and then, of course, the aftermath of all of this, as well as, like, how my family's history sort of intertwines with all this and, like, how this has all sort of affected me. Um, so, yeah, it's just been, like, really weird to see all of this sort of replaying and and all of this, like, weird anti-Russian shit popping up, just, like, not even, there's no critical thinking, it's just, that's Russian, we're not going to feature it, or, like, engage with it, and it's, once again, the question is always, is this actually helping? And, or, if you're, like, or if, like, people are engaging in, like, anti-Russian, like, behaviors towards, like, Russian-Americans, it's like, okay, like, what are the chances that people, like, a Russian-American citizen is actually, like, a spy? Um, like why are we even entertaining that thought right um and same like that like i have seen uh posts from like congress people as well as i think like um this came from a media executive who said like uh, Russian citizens in the United... Or, like, Russian people in the United States should have their assets seized and, like, their bank accounts frozen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's like, okay, why, though? Like, they're not doing anything. They're living in the United States. Like, it actively is not helpful for that. Like, it's not... They're not helping themselves if they're, like, spying for another country. I don't know how to... Like, it, it just is an absurd sort of, like, proposal and just, like, very... Bad and stupid, um, and yeah, just, like, this, like I said before, this extends to, like, anti-Chinese sentiments, too, in the United States, this is, like, very rampant, um, so that's sort of all the impetus for making this episode, so let's, let's dive right in here, like, millions of years later, um, okay, so to set the stage, um, I highly recommend watching, um, There's a YouTube video called History of Japan, it's very funny, um, and also, surprisingly, all completely accurate, um, but yeah, like, so, during a part of Japan's history, Japan decided to close its borders to everybody, include, and, like, close its borders, there's no travel, there's no, like, economic activity or interaction with the outside world, um, except for, like, this one port where I think they're trading with the Portuguese, Um, and so during this period is the closed country period, um, like, you know, Japan's in isolation. And then, um, one day America rolls up with like modern technology. And by modern, I mean, like, this is in the late 19th century. So, um, you know, we roll up with the latest technology of boats that have guns on them. Um, and to quote, history of Japan. Um America's like open up the country. Stop having it be closed. We have gunboats, boats with guns. Um and Japan was like, "Oh shit. Um they've got boats with guns, gunboats. What the fuck are we doing?" Um so then Japan opens up the country and starts to like engage in trade and everything with other countries um but of course, with the opening of Japan, that means like um, Japanese citizens are free to emigrate elsewhere. So there was a significant number of Japanese um, Japanese citizens who emigrated to Hawaii and the West Coast of the United States. Um, Hawaii, I think, had about like two hundred thousand um, Japanese Um and then the West Coast of the United States had. 180,000, um, and you can still see, like, the Japanese footprint on Hawaii, um, not because of Pearl Harbor, but, like, Hawaii has a really, really heavy Japanese, um, Japanese population, or Japanese-American population, and I feel like that has, that's especially, like, evident in, like, what we consider Hawaiian food today, um, I'd be definitely interested in having, like, a native Hawaiian, like, come in and talk about food and, like, how that has, um, like, the traditional stuff and, like, how that's, like, mixed with, um, different, um, cultural, uh, different cultural foods that have, like, made their way to the islands, um, but that's sort of a topic for another day, but yeah, um, so there's a lot of Japanese immigrants in Hawaii, and then lots in on the west coast of the United States. Number one location is California, followed by Washington State, and then Oregon. Um, and of course, with the migration of of um, Japanese folks to America, uh, there's a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment sentiment that starts to 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 um, to form. So a lot of, you know, sort of following the pattern of immigrants into the U.S., um, Japanese immigrants were farmhands and, um, you know, kind of participated in that sort of like low, quote-unquote, low-skill labor. So in 1907, the U.S. and Japan passed a gentleman's agreement, which basically prevented unskilled laborers from coming over from Japan. And that was to try and, like, stem uh, stem the flow of immigrants into the U.S. and, quote-unquote, stealing white people's jobs. Even though, like, I don't know, we look at people who are working on farms right now and who's, like, picking our produce. Right now, it's, like, it's uh, Latino people and, like... Th- uh, like, no no white person is, like, agitating to go be a farmhand. Um, so, of course, this, like, rhetoric of you're stealing our jobs, like, makes absolutely no sense. Um, but yeah, so the Gentleman's Agreement is passed in 1907, and that's mostly, domin- like, mostly, like, targeted at men. Um, which then means, like, the loophole is, oh, if, like, you're married and you want to come over to the United States and you're a woman, um, and you're married to an American person, then, yeah, you can certainly come, so that, um, sort of increases the movement of Japanese women, excuse me, to the United States, and that, uh, in what's called, um, Picture Brides, uh, which is, uh, in case you don't know, it's just kind of, like, a mail-order wife, um, where you, like, flip through a book, of pictures of women, and you're like, I want that one to be my wife, and then she comes over and she's just like, hi, I guess I'm here to be your wife because you ordered me in a catalog. Um, It's pretty shitty. Um, But, like, that's... I don't think that's where that started, but, like, that was sort of the loophole for Japanese folks to immigrate to the United States and sort of, like, circumvent the Gentleman's Agreement. Um, But... Of course, in response to all of this, there were um white hate groups that popped up. Um there was the Asiatic Exclusion League, the California Joint Immigration Committee, and then the my my personal favorite, the native sons of gold of the Golden West. Um, it's very funny that these white hooligans decided to call themselves a native because like we all know. Like you're not native. You're not from here. Um, in fact, nobody's from the U.S. except for the natives. Um, so, like, why are you calling yourselves the Native Sons of the Golden West? That's stupid and dummies. Um, but anyways, these three hate groups like were successful. we lobbying Congress to be like. Hey, stop letting um, Japanese folks come over and steal our jobs. And Congress was like, "Oh, okay." Um, and so they passed the Immigration Act of 1924, and that effectively like put a cap and stopped uh, put a cap on immigration from Japan and stopped all of that. Um, and this is very similar to the Chinese Exclusion Act of. Um, I think it was like 1868 or something like that, but yeah, the Chinese have been in uh, Chinese Americans have been part of American history since the 19th century. Um, if you're interested in looking at that, I can certainly talk. You know, do a, do a bonus episode on that as well. Or um, I would encourage you to do your own research. Actually, you know what? I might do a bonus episode on that too because that explains a lot of um, the rise of Chinese American cuisine and how and like the divergence of Chinese American or American Chinese food from like. Um, Traditional Chinese food. Um, So maybe I'll do another episode on that and like have somebody on, um, have a friend on who I like is a big food culture person um, to talk about that. But um, yeah, that the Immigration Act of 1924 was modeled after the Chinese Exclusion Act where they said like no more immigrants um, because I guess these poor white people are like having such a hard time. Um, So That is sort of the stage for all of this. Um, You've got uh, general support for Japanese Americans, but there's also these hate groups. Um, And these hate groups are going to be important later in the game. So, the start of all of this, right? Um, Japan bombs Pearl Harbor in December 1941. Um, It's not... it's certainly not a great move, um, but... This immediately brings America into World War Two, and um, Japanese Americans are immediately in the public eye. And initially, Japanese Americans are supported by their communities, and people are like, no, they're citizens, and they belong here, and we should respect them, which is great, because, you know, we're citizens, and we're people, and, you know, because we are people, period, we deserve to be respected. Um, but as I mentioned, those racist Asian, the racist white hate groups eventually swayed public opinion, and um, there was a lot of agitation, like, this, like, my grandma, um, my grandma's family um, is from, like, southwestern Washington state, Um, and my grandma grew up on a farm, and so she's one of like, like the Japanese American farming families, and they like there was a lot of um, of like fear around Japanese Americans like overtaking um, white farmers and and being more successful than them. Um, the iconic Pike Place Market in Seattle used to be dominated by Japanese American farmers, um, and you know, obviously people liked them, so that, um, there was a lot of pressure from these racist hate groups to be, like, hey, these Japanese Americans are stealing our farm, like, they're successful, and they're going to, like I said before, they're going to, like, take our jobs, blah, 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 and, um, so, like, that was one aspect of how, like, public opinion was turned against Japanese Americans, um, my grandpa's family I don't think really experienced the same level of, like, threat, because they owned a hotel in Seattle, and this is gonna get, like, really, really niche, but, like, if you've been to Seattle, there's this, um, in the International District, which is, used to be, um, Seattle's Japantown, or Nihonmachi, um, there is a grocery store there, and was family owned called Wajimaya. And right where the building is right now, it's kind of across the street ish from its old location. I don't know what's at the old location now, I think it's just a parking lot. Um, but that old location used to be a hotel before World War Two, and that was owned by my grandpa's family. Um, so, I am I mean, I'm sure that they experienced a lot of anti-Japanese racism um, before, like, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. I'm um, sure, like, people decided to not stay at the hotel, but I think also since this was based in, like, Japantown in Seattle, um, like, their clientele was probably mostly, like japanese immigrants and like japanese american families so um it was possible that they weren't really hit too hard by that um i wish i could ask my grandpa about this just because like yeah like it like my, my grandpa passed away um over 15 years ago or about 15 years ago so um i got to talk to him a little bit about this um but yeah like i think it would be obviously very nice to have like him around to talk to about the details of this episode and to, to share the story. It'd be, it would have been even cooler to just, like, interview him for this, um, this something that I tried to do many years ago, um, and that'll come up a little bit later in the episode. But, um, so yeah, um, the Japanese-American citizens were initially supported um, publicly, but then racist organizations, like, turned the tide of public opinion. Um, and FDR invoked the Alien Enemies Act, which is part of the, you know, surprisingly, um, or I guess maybe unsurprisingly, it's part of um, the Alien and Sedition Act, which was passed in the 18th century, um, so long before any of this, um, and actually still remains part of modern law. um, But uh, the president invoked the Alien Enemies Act and designated German-American, Italian-American, and Japanese-American Americans as enemy aliens subject to arrest, detention, and deter- internment for the duration of the entire war. Of course, with um, German Americans and Italian Americans, it's kind of a little bit harder to tell. Um, and I didn't really do any further research into detainment of. German or Italian-Americans, just because it's obviously not the focus of this episode, and also not my experience, um, but we could certainly, like, talk about that maybe at a later time, just to kind of, I guess, extend a little bit more empathy and say, like, hey, this is this actually happened to white people, too, so, like, let's not do it again, um, so, yeah, that is, um, that was sort of the first part of the response, and then... Um, what happened later, two months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, was what, um, is sort of the most um (sighs) leaves the biggest footprint in Japanese-American cultural history, and it's Executive Order 1966, and this was signed on the 19th of February in 1942. Um, so basically, Eisenhower, or not Eisenhower, wow, that is the wrong president. Um, FDR, uh, sort of said, like, hey, we're going to give the military, like, the authority to be able to kind of, like, do what they want with the people that we have designated as, um, enemy aliens. Um, so this meant that, um, General John DeWitt, who is a racist piece of shit, um, it it meant that that gave him a lot of control over, like, what happened and everything. Um, so, uh, what he ends up doing is he, he establishes two zones, um, two military zones uh, of where Japanese American people are determined to live um, and, or, like, have have been found to be living um, and institutes a curfew um, on the 27th of March in 1942. So, basically, like, if you're a Japanese American, you can't be outside after whatever time. Um, so that just makes life difficult. Um, and then... Um, but actually, a little bit before that, um, eviction from the West Coast begins um, on the 24th of March. With each wave of evictions, uh, Japanese-American families are told, you have a week to gather up your belongings and get your your situation sorted out, um, and you're going to be sent off to a camp. Um, you're going to be relocated. You don't know when you're going to come back, but um, yeah. Yeah. You have a week to get your affairs in order. Um and unsurprisingly, nobody really spoke out against this. Um only the only person only person in power who spoke out against this was the governor of Colorado, Ralph Lawrence Carr, um and he spoke out against it and the Japanese American community remembered that. Um so in Denver, in the in Japantown, there's a monument to Ralph Lawrence Carr honoring him for for saying, hey, what if we weren't racist for, like, five minutes? Um, And so, yeah, the eviction started late March 1942, and eviction of Japanese Americans from the West Coast was completed in August of 1942. Um, A little-known fact that I learned when doing research and putting together the more, like, structurally sound outline for this episode um, the U.S actually also interned or put Japanese Latin Americans in concentration camps. Um, I think all the Latin American countries rounded up their Japanese uh, immigrants as well as well as like the children of the like anyone of Japanese ancestry and shipped them off to the. US to go be put in concentration camps. so that includes Bolivia, Colombia, Costa Rica, the Dominican Republic, Ecuador, El Salvador, Guatemala, Haiti, Honduras, Mexico, Nicaragua, and Peru. So, like, a good number of Latin American countries were like, uh, we're gonna support this and and round up our uh, citizens of Japanese descent and send them off to the U.S. Uh, that'll show them. Um, and I am actually curious to, to do a little bit more research into this, just because um, that's something I didn't know. I thought this was only... Um, applicable to Japanese-Americans, and I know, like, stuff happened with Japanese-Canadians as well, um, but, yeah, like, I didn't I didn't know that. Um, so that's something to research, and maybe I'll talk about that at a later date. Um, but, yeah, that was a little-known fact, um, for me, at least. Uh, so there were... Let's see, how many are there? There were 10 major camps that were established. So there's Gila River granada heart mountain jerome manzanar Minidoka, poston rower topaz and tool lake um these all 10 of these camps were like in the middle of fucking nowhere um my grandparents uh were interned at Minidoka, which is in idaho i believe um And every year there, or, you know, COVID aside, every year there's a pilgrimage to Minidoka, um, to, in, in remembrance of, um, the Japanese Americans who were interned there, or who were, who were at the concentration camp there, um, but yeah, these, these camps were in the middle of nowhere, hastily assembled, um, and, yeah, just, like, the living conditions were just really shitty, um, Uh, there were so uh, these were hastily constructed but so in the in uh, before these 10 major camps were actually constructed um there were holding grounds where people were sent um in the interim uh one of the one of the famous ones at least in washington state um is the puyallup fairground which is where the um there's a like a every year um there's a really big fair called the puyallup fair and it's held up these fairgrounds, so it's obviously, like, pretty big, um, but, so, like, any other time during the year, like, the fairgrounds aren't really used, they're empty, um, so, uh, Japanese-Americans, fam- Japanese-Americans families were sent to P- the Puyallup Fairground, which was converted into living, um, into a concentration camp, um, and I think, basically, like, the horse stables were converted into living quarters, um, so that sort of living condition was perpetuated in the major camps as well, just because, like, since when has the U.S. invested infrastructure into making anybody feel comfortable ever, um, so you can only imagine how cramped those living situations were, I think it was, like, maybe, like, two horse stalls wide, um, and If you were lucky, one family got to live in that living space, but most of the time it was, like, two families, um, and now, of course, like, I don't know how big my grandma's family was, but my grandpa's family is, like, a family of, I believe, seven brothers, um, so, that's nine people cramped into the size of two horse stalls, that's ridiculous, um, and, quite frankly, inhumane, um, so, yeah, like, the living situations were, living conditions were pretty bad, um, and this is, of course, like, an army camp and shit, so, like, the food is not going to be great, um, and the sort of, like, most vivid memory that I've got of my grandpa talking about food and conditions and everything, um, so there, you know, now there's, uh, Kraft macaroni and cheese, box mac and cheese. Um, apparently that was served one time at the camp and my grandpa ate it and was just like absolutely disgusted and he hated it. Um, and I believe like, I know, I remember when my grandpa was still alive, he really hated, um, Italian food. And so as a result, like, uh, we, there's this, restaurant chain in seattle the seattle area called the spaghetti factory um and we never went there when my grandpa was alive um we would go there like maybe just like our family or like maybe like my cousins and i but never with my grandpa because he just really didn't like italian food and i can only th- i can only surmise that that was probably developed, um, that taste was probably developed during the, his time in the concentration camps, because, like, I don't know, the spaghetti and meatballs is, like, pretty easy to prepare for a large group of people, um, so yeah, I think the other, the only other kind of, like, interesting fun fact that I learned from my grandpa was I think he had rattlesnake when he was in the concentration camps, and he said it tastes like chicken, um, but then again, like, everything tastes like chicken, um or like I feel I, I think like it just seems like all like non like exotic animal meats taste like chicken. Um so uh yeah that that was sort of a f- fun I guess bit but yeah he he tried rattlesnake in camp Um, but otherwise like living conditions were really rough Um, and oh yeah so there's some some basic terminology that we need to know before going any further so because of the cap on immigration um, Japanese American society formed very, very well, like, well-defined generations. So there's what we call the Issei, or the first generation, which are Japanese immigrants to America, um, and their children are the Nisei, or the second generation, Um and I think, you know, probably some of the older Nisei were having were starting families of their own when they were um, put in the concentration camps. So there were a very few Sansei or third generation kids in the concentration camps. But for the most part, it was just Issei and Nisei um, folks. Um, and then for an example of just, I mean, how recent this is... Um, I'm yonsei, which is fourth generation Japanese American immigrant, um, my dad is sansei, and then my grandparents are nisei, and then my, all of my great-grandparents, who none of them are alive anymore, are issei, um, so, like, this isn't too far removed from, like, you know, the recent past, um, just in case, for whatever reason, you thought it was. Um, it's it's rather recent. It's only like a couple generations ago. Um, but so, uh, what I what I wanted to bring up with that is the Issei or the first generation um, Japanese immigrants. You know, immigrants to this country. This is a tough place to be, um, especially if you're not white. Um, like if you're an immigrant and not white, so. A lot of the Ise had this mentality uh, that is summed up by the Japanese phrase "shikata ga nai," which basically means there's nothing to be done, Um, and this sort of like encompassed the sort of mindset of like just roll the punches, go with it, keep your head down, and um, and listen to what's being told to us, and maybe we'll get through this um, faster. Um, maybe not necessarily faster, but just, like, you know, just roll the punches and we'll, we'll deal with it. Um, so that was the predominant, like, Issei sort of mindset. Um, but, of course, the Nisei, um, it's a little bit more difficult when you're, you, you grow up in... American society, and you're from here, and you, like, this is, the United States is really the only place that you've ever known as your home, um, so that'll come into play a little bit later, um, so that was, the, uh, sort of the Issei, uh, mentality in the camps, um, and of course, you know, life is continuing in the camps, um, there, there was, uh, a lot of, Um, Nisei were, uh, in school when this all happened, so a lot of Japanese American students ended up having their educations interrupted. So anywhere from, like, elementary school all the way through to college, um, people were, uh... People's lives were disrupted. Um, there were a few college age students who were able to um, escape from the camps, and not necessarily escape as much as they were like sanctioned releases, um, because there were colleges on the e- colleges and universities on the East Coast um, that took pity, and they decided to like admit a certain number of Japanese American students. Um, and I believe Oberlin also had um, some Japanese American students there, and one of them became the president of the student body, um, I, his name escapes me right now, but, um, there were some, some folks who were able to continue their educations during the war, um, but yeah, for the most part, um, a lot of Japanese Americans, uh, Japanese American folks during the, this period, there's, their educations were completely interrupted, um, and so obviously there's a, a distinct parallel here between, um, know, what's going on right now with COVID and kids having their learning interrupted. But of course you imagine, like, with with COVID right now, the kids kids in school, like, their learning is interrupted, but also, like, they're able to do things virtually, and they're still qualified teachers and everything to actually teach, um, albeit over Zoom, and whether that's effective is up to, um, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see in a, in a few years. Um but for the Japanese Americans living in internment camps or in the concentration camps, um, they had to have <coughs> excuse me, they had to have teachers come and teach them. Um, and obviously like there was no special attention given to construction of school buildings, so like they were su- extremely susceptible to the weather. Um, and as a reminder, all 10 of these, uh, concentration camps are out in in the middle of fucking nowhere, which means, like, generally the desert, so during the summertime, it gets really hot, and during the winter, it gets really, really cold, um, so learning was just generally an unpleasant experience, and of course, then of on top of the physical discomfort, there's a lot of, uh, intellectual discomfort, because basically, it's just, like, these, these schools just taught propaganda, um, and just, like, the importance of being a loyal citizen, um, and a lot of Japanese Americans who went to school during, in the camps were just, like, this is weird that we're, like, learning about loyalty, um, like, that's cool and all, but, like, we're also, uh, we're in these concentration camps, and we didn't do anything, um, so that is, like, just you know obviously that's just something that is absolutely wild and just so heartbreaking um and but there were there were other like bright patches as well um that Japanese American folks were able to find in the camps um there were community gardens in the camps um and I think there's, I think, there's a book that was written about the baseball leagues that were started in these concentration camps, um, and I think that's a, the main reason why a lot of like Japanese American folks really like baseball. Um, it's generational trauma, guys. <laughs> um, like, there's, um, yeah, the baseball was a, a huge pastime in the camps, um, and although. Interestingly enough, like there were some there there were some really great Japanese American athletes who got to uh, prove themselves uh, in, in playing baseball in the camps but um, none and a couple of them actually I think if I remember reading correctly um, actually tried out um, for the t- the recruiter for the um, the Brooklyn Dodgers but none of them actually ended up making it which just kind of feels like you know hmm I wonder I wonder what that was actually like the reason why they didn't make it but um Yeah, baseball was a really, really big part of camp. Um, I don't know, I don't remember if my grandpa ever talked about it, um, but, like, I know my grandpa really likes baseball, or really liked baseball. My grandma also really liked baseball, um, or really likes baseball, but uh, she, I think, um, ended up being more into basketball, she and her friends. But, yeah, if you... um, meet any older Japanese-American folks and you notice that they like to watch their local baseball teams, uh, it's because of Japanese-American concentration camps during World War II. Um, Generational trauma manifesting itself in... um, the enjoyment of baseball um so yeah that was a really big part of uh of sort of like staying active and also like trying to distract yourself from the hellscape that is living in a concentration camp in your own country um so in addition but of course you know it's a concentration camp so things aren't fun at all fun and games um there was a barbed wire perimeter um and you were not allowed to get within, like, several feet of the perimeter. Um, There were watchtowers set up all around the camp just to make sure that nobody escaped. Um, And uh, sort of, like, pop culture aside, this was featured in an episode of Teen Wolf, uh, the MTV series Teen Wolf. Um, There's, like, an origin story of, like, how this one, like, villain spirit or, like, whatever comes to comes to be um and it takes place in a Japanese American concentration camp and the writing is just like insulting and shit because um th- at the end of the episode there's like what turns out to be like close to a riot and these f- these people get really close to the fence um and because I'm Japanese American and I have heard stories about all of this I know that shit's inaccurate because um, there's a very, very famous story of a Japanese American um, fellow who was actually killed by the guards because he was walking too close to the fence. He was just walking. Um, his name was James Hatsuaki Wakasa. He was in he was in the Topaz concentration camp, um, and he's the most famous. Um, like, famous isn't really the best way to put it, but like. Um, Every every Japanese-American person who's heard about the camps um, has heard about Wakasa and how he was murdered by um, the, the security guards because he was walking too close to the, the fence. Um, and I believe it's just, like, he was really old and his hearing was bad, but also, like, these guys up in the security towers, like, they're up in a security tower. Like, you know, it's hard to hear from down on the ground. Um but, also, like maybe we shouldn't be shooting people who are just like walking near the fence, like this guy's an old dude, he's just like walking around. um, we shouldn't be shooting people, period uh, that's it. <laughs> we shouldn't be shooting people um so yeah that's that's the that's also like part of um life during the camps, um obviously, lots of just like. Don't forget, you're in fucking hell um, for doing absolutely nothing, just for looking the way that you do and having the blood that you do. Um, So as I mentioned earlier, there was the Ise way of of thinking, which is shikata ga nai, or there's nothing that can be done, let's just sort of deal with it. But the nisei, obviously, were of a different mind. Um so during the war there was a call for recruitment um, and initially japanese american folks were not able to apply because they were designated as enemy aliens but i don't remember like what sort of legislation passed to to reverse that but um, eventually japanese americans were able to enlist in the army to serve their country which is just so tough, right? You've got this country, you've got this shithole of a country um, that says like you are an enemy to us because we think you're a spy, we think you're go-, like you're all Japanese sympathizers, um, and we're gonna toss you in a camp for doing nothing wrong, um, and then for for the government to turn around and be like, hey, actually, do you want to prove your loyalty? Come fight for us. Um, it's just. So insulting. Um, so like obviously some Nisei felt like this was the best way to prove their loyalty to their countries to go serve in the military. Um I can't imagine what I would have done. Because, like, on one hand, yes, it gets you out of the camp. Um, it gets you out of hell, but like sends you to a different sort of hell. Um and one of my great uncles actually ended up doing that. I have two great uncles who I never got to meet. Um, I think the oldest, my grandpa's oldest brother, ended up serving in the Japanese military because he was repatriated um, back to Japan. So he served in the military, he fought in World War II on the side of Japan. Um, and then another one of my grandpa's brothers ended up um, enlisting in the army. Actually, two of them, I believe, ended up enlisting in the army, and um, we'll get to. uh, Oh, actually, no. I mean, this is the section. So, um, the uh, there was the four hundred forty second Infantry Regiment of the Army, and that was the sort of play like the battalion that was made up of pure of like almost exclusively Japanese American folks. Um, and it's one of the most well-decorated battalions in milita- American military history, um, and they have they they did really important things like they rescued the lost battalion in France, um, and they're credited with um, actually uh, basically like freeing France or like um, yeah like liberating France during World War Two, um, and the great uncle, one of my great uncles who served in the, in the 442nd went MIA in Briere, France, um, and I know that my dad actually wants to go there just to, like, not because, you know, I think it'd be cool to go to France to, like, experience the culture and everything, but I know he wants to go to Briere specifically to see, um, yeah, just sort of, like, the place, um, and geographically, connect with one of his uncles, who he never got to meet, um, who went MIA during World War Two, and just, yeah, I guess, like, I don't know, there's something, um, important about being in a place where your ancestors were, especially, like, that's, I think, the last known place that he was, my, my great-uncle was seen alive, um, and I believe um, there was a story about him, like saving his his uh, battalion or something from like a grenade or whatever. But um, yeah, like that's um, yeah. Like uh, my dad wants to go there. I also want to go because I, you know, I didn't really get that. there. My so my grandpa after the war only had two like two brothers that I ended up being able to meet, um, which is very sad, because, like, my mom got to meet one of my other great uncles, um, and she said he was really funny. Um, and I never got to meet him, unfortunately. Um, and I think that's just, like, due to old age, not necessarily due to do anything related to the war. But, um, yeah, like, if the war hadn't happened, then maybe I might have, like, an even larger family on my gra- on my dad's side. But, um yeah, uh, that is, um, the, the Nisei sort of pushback on, um, on the racism that they experienced, and it's just, like, so hard to even imagine what you would do, like, I, like, hate that my, my grandpa and, like, his brothers, and like really all Japanese American folks who were put in the camps who were able to serve in the military, like, I hate that they were put through this chance, uh, through this, not this chance, through this decision of like, my country hates me because of the way I look, I have done nothing wrong, and you're asking me to serve, and to protect, and to fight for this country, like what an insult. I I can't imagine. I I think I probably would have been like fuck this. There's no way I'm serving in the military for this shithole of a country. Um, but you know, I obviously wasn't there, and I'm I'm glad that that is behind us, so that I don't have to make that decision. But I really hope that nobody ever has to make that decision ever. Um, so yeah, that is that sort of like wraps up all of life in the camps. Um, so then, um, life after the camps for Japanese American folks was was pretty difficult. So, incarceration ends ended like kind of de jure or like in respect in regards to the law on December eighteenth, nineteen forty four. After a couple of U.S. Supreme Court cases, there was Korematsu versus the United States, and ex parte Endo. Um, so these are two different cases. Um, Korematsu versus the United States was uh, the ruling basically ended up saying that it's legal for the government to evict U.S. citizens in light of military necessity. Um, so that's you know that's part of at least the beginning of Executive Order 1966 where um, these where Japanese Americans were evicted from their homes and given a week to sort of get their affairs in order. Um, but the second case, um, which is sort of what wins us the success is ex parte endo, um, which the, the ruling ends up saying that loyal citizens of the U S regardless of cultural heritage cannot be t- detained without cause. Um, so as I mentioned before, you know, just briefly circling back to the beginning of all of this, um, Japanese Americans were suspected of espionage on behalf of the Japanese government, but there was never anything found, um, concretely. This is all propaganda fed to the government by these, uh, white hate groups. As I mentioned before, um, like, those hate groups successfully lobbied and, like, pushed for their own agenda in the government. So, um, yeah, there was really, like, no basis for, uh, Japanese Americans to be, sent to concentration camps. So those are the two court cases that ended up ending um, the concentration camps and ending that, um, but Japanese-American folks were not allowed to leave the camps until the 5th of January 1945, and that was mainly to not interfere with FDR's re-election efforts or whatever, or something like that. It was just to, like, sort of make sure that... Um, like, oh, uh, the Japanese were not released during, during my, like, my time, and so I, that, like, it's all just, like, a popularity shit, um, so, yeah, um, but of course, you know, at this point, it's been, um, you know, this all started in 1942, um, and then they were, were, uh, the Japanese Americans left the camps in 1945, so it's been three years, um, so when Japanese American folks were leaving, um, sometimes they were able to get in touch with other community members and say, like, hey, can you please, like, take care of my house while I'm gone, or, like, look after my shops, or, you know, like, be able to secure their belongings, um, but other folks weren't so lucky. So as I mentioned before, there were some Japanese American folks who were farmers, um, and they actually didn't own their own land because they were sharecroppers, and so they had nothing to go back to. Um, and to sort of, like, add insult to injury, um, when Japanese American folks were, for like, their eviction started in January of ni- uh, January of 1945, but, like, of course, if you don't have anything to go back to, then like there's no motivation to leave, right? So like at least at least in the concentration camps, you've got somewhere to somewhere to to lay down and rest your head and like you've got somewhere that you're living. Whereas like outside of that, if if you were not so lucky to have your property secured, you have nothing to go back to. Um, And there was a war relocation council, and the WRC, War Relocation Council, like, was pushing really hard for these folks to leave the concentration camps, which is really hard to do when, especially if you don't have any property and nothing to your name, except for the clothes on your back and maybe things that you can fit in a bag, you're only given $25 and a ticket to return to where you came from. Like not Japan tickets to return to wherever city in in the west, on the west coast that you came from like twenty five dollars, what the fuck are you gonna do with that? Like this is like ugh, it's just so upsetting to figure to, to like find out about that and just like imagine um, do you have nothing? You have absolutely nothing. What the fuck are you going to do with $25? I don't know what that converts to today, but, like, just thinking about it today, you can't even get a hotel room for $25. You can't even stay in a hotel room for the night for $25. What the fuck were people supposed to do with $25 back in 1945 when they were, like, forced out of camp? Like, what? What the hell? Um, It's, like, who the fuck thought that would work? It was just so... So infuriating and... um, like, for the folks who, as I mentioned, the unlucky folks who were not able to secure their belongings, they, they had to leave their belongings in position of possession of the government. When is the government ever taking care of anything? right? So, like, a lot of Japanese-American folks suffered a lot of property loss due to both theft and also destruction of items placed in in government storage. Um, So, life after the war was really, really hard for Japanese-Americans, especially if you were unlucky and, like, you were a sharecropper before, or, like, you weren't able to find anybody in your community who was nice enough to, like, take care of your house for you for three years, which is, like, a really big ask, it's, like, I don't know when I'm coming back, but, like, can you take care of my house? Thanks, um, to you whenever, and that's assuming that people don't move, of course, um, so, yeah, like, I, can, I don't, I never really talked to my grandpa or my grandma about life after the war, like, immediately after, because, like, there is ultimately a good ending to this, so, like, it's not all bad, but, like, the The good ending is a is a long time coming. So, um, yeah, I I know my grandpa was an alcoholic. He died of esophageal cancer because he was also a heavy smoker. Um, and like I can only imagine that those habits were picked up after. Um, after the end of the war, because like I don't know if my grandpa's family was lucky enough to to get um, to to ha- to retain their property. Um, I mean, like we don't own the hotel anymore, so that must like that tells me something. But um, I mean, it might be just because my great grandpa decided not to run a hotel anymore either. But um, yeah, like we don't have the hotel. That's no longer part of my family. Like our possessions or anything, Um, so I think that's pretty telling as to, like, what happened and just, like, the level of hardship that Japanese Americans went through after the war, Um, so three years later, three years after, um, there was the, you know, people, Japanese Americans were like, hey, government daddy government like we're having a hard time here uh can we can we please maybe get some help especially since y'all fucked us over and daddy government was like okay sure maybe um and the Japanese American Japanese American Claims Act was passed on July 2nd of 1948 to allow folks to file for property loss um but the main difficulty was that with this was like you know the the government has to have some basis on which to disperse funds and what Financial records do the government does the government keep taxes, um, and at this point, this is 1948. So most of the time, the government will retain records for I think it's seven years before destroying them. So it's 1948. Um, internment started in early 1942, which means that the latest tax return that. Uh, could be referenced is from the fiscal year of 1941 so it's just like inconveniently seven years um so a lot of people who uh, like there were there were 260 uh, 26,568 claims that were made um and a total of 148 million dollars requested in in reimbursement but only 37 million was able to be approved and dispersed because a lot of the tax records from before the war had been destroyed by that by that point by the IRS. so like on one hand like that's not malicious but it's also just like sort of like hey we fucked you over and also here's a way that we can help you but like we also happen to like make it so you can't like fully reap the benefits of this, so fuck you. It's kind of sort of just like a double double whammy there. So that was just like really upsetting to learn about. Um but after this, um this is where things start not things start to, to, to turn around, but um the the notion of redress comes comes Uh, To light or like starts to starts to come around Um, Mostly inspired by the civil rights movements in the 60s um, but um, I know that my grandpa um, Like has taken credit for like initiating that movement. It's very hard obviously to um, to Credit someone or like to pinpoint exactly the person who started the idea Um, But I know that's something that um, my grandpa actually has a page online um that's about him um and because this is behind a paywall actually um i will um put down that information i was gonna say this is kind of doxing myself but i've also like say my first and last name on every podcast episode that goes out to the public so like i don't feel um too bad about that but um yeah I'll, i'll link to the to the page that's on my grandpa and you can um you can read about him um but so yeah this uh there was a movement for redress, and um, eventually there. Were, so after the war, uh, this Japanese American citizens group formed called the Japanese American Citizens League, or JACL. Um, so that ended up forming, and uh, it's a political interest group for advocating for the um, for Japanese Americans. Um, and basically, there ended up being enough momentum behind it such that JACL got word of redress and decided to also push for that. Um, so in 1976. The first success that the redress movement had was President Ford saying, like, hey, um, maybe we fucked up. Uh, we were wrong to put you guys in concentration camps. That was really not cash money of us. Um, of course, that's just words. Doesn't really, that's, that's something, but it's also, like, not, you know, how do you undo losing everything that you, uh, that you, that you, achieved in this country, and only being given $25, I, yeah, I, I actually really want to talk with my, this is probably going to be very hard, but, like, especially for my grandma, because she doesn't like to talk about this, but, like, talk with my grandma, and, like, learn a little bit more about how it was after the war, like, especially since my grandma's family, like I mentioned, um, they were a farming family, I don't know if they got their land back, or if they were, like, spectacularly poor after the war, I really wonder, um, so, Yeah, that's 1976. Gerald Ford, President Ford says, we're wrong. Um, But uh, in 1978, there was an official redress campaign that was launched via JCL. um, And that's sort of like all the, the weight being put behind there and now you've got like a political like not I don't think JCL is technically a PAC or a political action committee, but like you've got this major civil rights um group now lobbying for that. So it's now, you know, it's it's the voice is a lot more consolidated, um, and stronger. Um and so that's a redress campaign is launched um, in 1978, and then in 1980, President Carter established the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians, or the CWRIC. Um, and this committee basically spent three years doing research on like what happened, and basically they took it took them three years to learn like. Oh hey, um maybe the US was wrong to do this and like our handling of all of this was like really shit um and just bad. And uh maybe we should do something about it. Um and this this um this document is called uh personal justice denied. I think I've seen it floating around at my parents' house. Um but yeah, it's like a, a summary of like all the things that happened during World War Two and how the Japanese Americans were treated and how the U.S. shouldn't have done it um, because basically they they're, they summarize like, oh, yeah, we listen to these like hate groups and, and really like based our response uh, to Japanese Americans based on what these hate groups are saying, which is just fucking wild. Um, so, yeah, it took them three years to be like, hey, maybe we were wrong. Um, but, you know, after that, it takes another eight years So in 1988, President Reagan, that's surprising that Reagan actually says, uh, like, did this, but President Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act, which granted $20,000 in redress to people who were affected by Japanese-American concentration camps. So keep in mind, right, this all starts in 1942. It is now 46 years later. I don't know when my great-grandparents started to pass away, On my like from my grandpa and my my grandpa and my grandma's sides or anything, I don't know when that happened. But like at this point, it's forty, it's almost fifty years later. Um, So luckily, both my grandparents are around to get their their redress checks. But like, I I the only other the only tidbit that I know about like one of my great grandparents on my grandma's side. Is that he was a, uh, an apartment super in Seattle, and apparently he never learned any English either. So my dad was like, I was real, also like very, very um, curious about how like your great grandpa got around being a super in Seattle um, without speaking any English. Um, so yeah, like it's it's forty eight years later, which is forty eight years too late, but. Um, yeah, Reagan signs the Civil Liberties Act, which grants $20,000 to people in redress. Um, keep in mind the folks who are still alive. Um, so if you had a relation, like if you had a parent or something who was in the concentration camps and they passed away, you don't get to collect that money. You only get to collect for yourself. Um. And then four years later in 1992, George H.W. Bush signs another uh, Civil Liberties Act, which grants an additional $400 million to disperse um, the $20,000 in redress for anybody who didn't get their check the first time around. So, to put this into context, I was born in 1993. Um, I've got some friends who were born in 92. So, like, this is the full compensation. For folks who were affected by this in 1940, was not completed until 50 years later, um, and at the beginning of my childhood, or like the beginning of my life period. Um, so this has had far-reaching effects, and now, of course, you know, just to sort of to 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 bring the, to bring a parallel to this, imagine this, but like the hardship and shit that I described with getting only $25 and a a ticket to go back to your hometown, but over generations, multiple generations, 400 years, right? That is, that is, um, what's facing black Americans. Um, and so on one hand, like, I'm optimistic that we can do reparations for black people because we did it for Japanese Americans. We we, we did it. We, like, Japanese Americans are the precedent for reparations. It's possible. Is it going to be a lot of money? Absolutely. But, like, black people deserve it for what, you know, being affected by slavery for generations. Like, that is generations and generations of wealth denied. Um to people and like i think you know luckily my grandparents were able to recover because of that money and and like we're middle class um, but i can only imagine the hardship that they went through immediately after the war and that's i i just think that things would be very different for me i would be in a very very different place if my if my grandparents didn't get that money um so obviously it can make a a world of difference and for black folks it's that would be amazing. Like there's there's really no there's no downside to this, right? Because like the uh, reparations would be enough to help people like if people are in debt, help get them out of debt. If they're looking to buy a house, help buy a house. Um if they're looking to if if they need more financial stability like it gives them that and a lot of the a lot of problems in today's society are actually fixed by money whether that be like homelessness or like drug abuse or whatever like i'm not said this is not specifically limited to the black this is not sorry this is not like th- that those issue these issues that i'm talking about i'm not talking about in the context of the black community i'm just talking about social issues at large All of these could be fixed with money, so it's just, like, wild, and, you know, we all know it's fucking racism, but, um, and basically people whining, like, uh, we can't just do that, money doesn't grow on trees, um, except, like, we've got fucking billionaires, so, like, tax the billionaires, and we can use that money to, like, change the world, um, yeah, I don't know, whatever, uh, so, (sighs) Reparations, it's possible. Japanese Americans really should be like, and I think we are like JCL's stance on this is very much just like, yes, give black people reparations because we got ours. So, like, why not give black people theirs? Um, So, yeah, that's sort of like, I guess, the good ending of the story of all of this is that, like, we did get reparations, but like $20,000 for suffering for 50 years. That's not enough. Like that's barely that that like you know twenty thousand divided by fifty. That is roughly that's four hundred dollars per year. I think. Let me just double check the math on that because that's what we do here. Is we we don't talk about important issues. We talk about math, and if the math is mathing, yeah, it's four hundred dollars per year, which is ridiculous. Like that is. A little bit over a dollar a day. Like, luckily that was enough to change people's lives, but, like, definitely not enough. Like, I don't know what that that $20,000 ends up being in today's currency, but, like, not nowhere near enough. So, like, black folks definitely, like, if you're looking for, like, (laughs) if you're looking for a number for reparations, aim higher than $20,000 per person. Because, like... That doesn't... You guys have 400 years. $20,000 for 400 years? That's, like... Let's do the math on that. <laughs> Why did I close the calculator? I made. I just made that joke about, like, this being the, the, the math show. Um, that's $50 a year! That's bullshit! You guys should definitely, like... Black folks should definitely get more than $20,000. Um, and obviously, that should go up the more time that you guys don't get reparations. Um, so... Yeah, um, reparations, they're possible, I support it, um, it would be absolutely life-changing, I think this country would really go a long way, um, into becoming not only, like, a more equitable, equitable place, but just, like, yeah, like, if there's no, it's no big deal if there's no lower class, That no, there's really no big deal, and I, I like, the, the main thing, this, sorry, this is, like, social, social soapbox here, but, like, the main reason why I feel like so many people are Persistent in keeping a lo- in like the lower class is because they want to feel better than other people. And it's like oh at least I'm not as poor as that person, or at least like my living situation isn't as shitty as that person. And it's like look, I hate to tell you this, but like nobody should be living in squalor. It fucking sucks. Like nobody should be nobody should be living a destitute life, especially in America. Like the United States of America, like we claim to be like one of the richest countries on the, in on the globe. So why do we have people living in just filth? It'd make it make sense. I, I I I mean, like I know it's racism, it's capitalism, it's like all you know, all the bullshit that America is built on. But like, imagine moving as a society past that and giving people the resources that they need to live. Period. Because like as we as we all know, it costs money to live. <laughs> there's a cost of living and it's fucking expensive to live so give people at least the 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 money they need to live and then like allow them to build from that. Like a lot of, as I mentioned, a lot of the social issues before are solved by money, solved by money. Like if you give people like a solid foundation to live on, like if you provide for people's basic needs, then they will, they will go and flourish. Like I don't know like why, I I do know, but like I also like don't know why the, the solution that people are thinking of is like, we need more police. Like really? Really, is that the fucking, like, solution that we've come up with? Like, use your goddamn brain and think a little bit more. Um, okay, so <laughs> I need to step off the soapbox because um, there's still a little bit more to go here. Um, so, in terms of the legacy of the concentration camps, right? Obviously, there's, like, the, cult, the imprint, the generational trauma imprint on Japanese Americans. As I mentioned, like... In terms of just, like, where we are financially and um, why Japanese American folks like baseball so much. Um, This was definitely, like, now that I'm thinking about it, this was definitely, like, impressed on my cousins. Like, um, all of my cousins played softball um, and, you know, whether that was because they actively agitated for it or because, like, my aunt and my uncle pushed for it, like, I am never gonna know, um, that's also, like, not my business and I'm not that curious about it, that's their own sort of thing to unpack, but, like, yeah, that was, that, that came about because my grandparents liked baseball because that was really all there was to fucking do in the concentration camp, so, um, but yeah, other than, other than that sort of, like, intangible legacy, um, there were a, a few concentration camps that ended up being preserved. So Tool Lake, Manzanar, Heart Mountain, Topaz, Amache, um, Jerome, and Rower were were preserved. Amache, I don't think I mentioned before is one of like the 10, 10 major ones. Um, I think that was a smaller camp that was put together. But um, I believe, you know, I, I, I do need to do more research on this, especially since I do want to do the pilgrimage to Minidoka one day. But... Um, I don't think the Minidoka site is still, like, up, but there's, like, a, a center, like, a building there that houses, like, a museum or something, so, um, yeah, the, we do have physical reminders, but of course they're on the middle of the fucking desert, so they're not immediately visible, so people can't be like, oh my god, look at this, like, actual monument to the human cost of war. Uh, it's not immediately visible, like, you have to go, like, take a bus or something out to the middle of fucking nowhere. Um, and sort of the last part of this is um, former Supreme Court Justice Tom C. Clark, who represented the U.S. Department of Justice in the relocation of Japanese Americans, wrote in the epilogue of, to the book, uh, Executive Order um the internment of 110,000 Japanese Americans, which was published in 1992. The truth is, as this deplorable experience proves that constitutions and laws are not sufficient of themselves despite the unequivocal language of the Constitution of the United States that the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended, and despite the Fifth Amendment's command that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, both of these constitutional safeguards were denied by military action under Executive Order 9066. Of course, this is also, like, very timely because in the United States we're trying to confirm um, the first black woman judge to the supreme court it's embarrassing that this country has been around for two, for 400 years and we still have firsts for people of color like absolutely embarrassing we all know why that is though um, it rhymes with uh, basism um, but yeah it's like it's just so weird to me like I mean it makes sense because like the constitution was framed by a bunch of like white slave owners but like it's just so wild to me that, like, there are people who, in law, there are, like, actual lawyers who went to school and, poli- like, I mean, it, you don't have to go to a law school to be a politician, but, like, there are actual people who, like, went to law school and graduated and have law degrees, and they hold the Constitution as, like, the highest law of the land. And they they're just always like, what would the founders would have wanted? And it's like, the founders would have wanted, like, only white people to be in power, they would have, like, taken a look, like, their minds would be blown by current American society, they'd be like, why are all these black people wandering around, um, and why aren't they on a farm, like, you know, picking cotton, or, like, you know, being, being farmhands, like, that's not the country that we live in, and that's also not the country that we should want to be living in, um, it's it's time to acknowledge that America was built on the foundation of racism. So like a lot of of racism and white supremacy. So like all of the stuff that we're taking that we're like modeling after the Constitution, like that's fucking based in racism. So like uh, just dream a little bit bigger. Like that's the I mean that's the reason why the Constitution was given the power to be amended. Um, and like so we sh- we just need to continue to amend the constitution to make this into a country that's better for us. Like, we've also, like, because we have amendments, we can also repeal amendments. Like, there was the amendment to say, like, drinking is now illegal. Like, we have made America a dry country. And of course, we all saw how that, how well that went. And so, like, there was another amendment to repeal it. So, like, you know, easy, low-hanging fruit right now is make an amendment to repeal the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights. Like, the Bill of Rights was is not concrete, right? It's not part of the body of the Constitution. You need, even if it was, we could still amend it because that's the power of constitutional amendments. Um, so, like, let's pass an amendment to be like, hey, uh, remember that Second Amendment that says, like, you have the right to bear arms? Like, uh, that's only applicable, like, for when the gun of the day the gun du jour, if you will, (laughs) (laughs) now welcoming to the stage, gun du jour, Um, like, when the gun of the day was a musket, where you had to, like, it was an investment to fire a shot, and not just, like, a monetary investment, a time investment. You had to, like, shove the the ball down the barrel and, like, stuff it down there, and then, like, even then, like, your shot was wildly inaccurate, gunpowder was expensive, and, like, you only shot when you needed to. Um, and now it's just so easy to, like, you just... Go Down to your local Walmart, you're gonna buy a gun and buy ammo, and there's no background check. And you just be like, Hey, so I just got a gun for like two dollars. Um, obviously, not two dollars, but like you could guns are easily accessible. Um, so yeah, we could just I don't know amend the Second Amendment. Um Okay, so that is sort of like the end of all the history and stuff. Um, If you're interested in learning more about um, these experiences, there there are definitely books written about this, um, and the ones that I'm recommending are written by people who either um, directly experienced these, um, experienced the internment, the concentration camps, or like are Asian. There are are a number of books written by white people, some of them are worth exploring but some of them is just like eh, i don't know um you can you can do more research into the white experience the white white perspectives if you're like really dying for it but like um the four that i'm recommending the first one is a memoir called farewell to manzanar it's by gene wakatsuki houston um and all of these will be in the episode notes as well on the on the patreon page so don't worry about losing any of this information so there's farewell to manzanar um And then um, this one might be a little bit harder to find. I need to actually do the searching to see, like, how, like, widely available this book is. But, like, my grandpa and a bunch of his peers put together a book called Omoide, which means memories in Japanese. Um, And true to form, true to the title, it's a a book of a collection of stories from people who were in the concentration camps and sort of, like, the day-to-day life of everything that went on, um, written by each... Person who contributed to the to the collection, um, and it's like a little picture book um, meant to share these stories with with kids. And I I think the original intent was to share this with like um, Japanese American kids so we can learn about our history. Um, then this this next one is is historical fiction. It's called Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet by Jamie Ford. I read this in the eighth grade. Um, Jamie Ford himself is half. Chinese, I think, so not directly impacted by uh, Japanese-American concentration camps, but um, this is basically the story of, like, uh, because the Japanese, the Chinese-Americans were also affected by this, because like, it's unless you look at someone's last name, it's hard to tell what sort of, like, East Asian ancestry someone's got, um, and so Chinese Americans during World War II actually had to wear patches that said, I am Chinese American to avoid getting, um, shipped off to the concentration camps, and so as a result, like, there's a lot of, this story is focusing on, like, um, a Chinese American's perspective of, like, Sort of the aftermath of World War, or like the aftermath of like his best friend being a Japanese American person and like being rounded up and sent to a concentration camp. Um, so that's Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. Um, and then there's also, uh, I don't know if this one's fiction actually, I need to do a little bit more research into it, but I'm also like closely tied to the family that this per that this author's from or that this author, um, is. I think this actually might be like one of my, my friend's, like, grandparents or something, but, um, No-No Boy, uh, by John Okada, um, is another book to, to check out, um, yeah, I, uh, related to the Okada family, uh, by blood, um, or not by blood, sorry, by, by marriage, so, um, yeah, I actually want to try and get in touch with, (laughs) another, um, another John Okada, um, one of my uncles, uh, who, I wonder if he was named after, after this guy, and, and, like, what relation that he has to, um, this author, but, um, yeah, those are, those are four books to take a look at, um, So, yeah, this is the end of the episode. I have spent almost an hour and a half talking, and like I said, this is not going to be edited, so it really is going to be truly an hour and a half of me talking at you. Thank you so much for subscribing once again to the Patreon, for listening to me being real and raw on Main, and and vulnerable. Um, This was both cathartic to talk about, but also um, taxing. Like, I didn't like I said I didn't know about some things before even doing this in depth research I knew I knew some things because like my grandpa had talked about it oh actually like one story that I forgot to that I that I left out um, with the with my great uncle serving in the war um, and and dying in France my grandpa shared that story um, when I did this interview with him the first time, um, like way back when I was in like 6th or 5th grade or something, and I was, wanted to do more learning about my family history, um, and my grandpa vividly remembers the day that, you know, a military person actually came to knock on knock on the door and say, um, one of your sons has died in combat, um, and that was the only time I've ever seen my grandpa cry, um, he could not continue the story, and we, we just stopped the interview there, because my grandpa was just incredibly sad remembering that, so, um, I don't know, war is bad, in case you didn't realize that already, war is bad, and tears people, tears families apart, and it's all for, um, people with money and power to be like, this is what I believe in, and they don't ever pay the price, so, um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this uh, this episode talking about um, my family history and the history of uh, Japanese-American concentration camps. And hopefully you can see the parallels to a lot of what's going on with the anti-Russian sentiments and also the anti-Chinese sentiments. Um, obviously, the anti-Russian sentiments are a little bit more at the forefront because of um, the war with russia and ukraine um but keep this in mind for sure with like really anybody like this is happening to muslim folks in the america in in the united states really globally um this is also happening to like latino people in the united states uh sp- you know blatantly with um, being detained at the border um and being sent to like Biden hasn't dealt away with, like, keeping kids in cages, so that's still ongoing, um, and, um, yeah, like, this, this is, this is still happening places, so, um, hopefully you learned something new, and you're able to keep this in mind, um, given current events, um, and, if you found this educational and you like this format, I would highly encourage you to share this with your friends. Tell your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Um, you know, I've got cool things that I talk about too. You guys are following me for a reason. So, um, do some sharing if you, if you think that people will enjoy this. Um, and also, you know, final disclaimer and, like, important thing to note, this is just my family's experience. Um, as, and as I mentioned, like, we're kind of better off, um, because we, we were able to get the redress money. Um, that's certainly probably not the case for some families who, like, immediately after the war, were immediately in poverty, and, and who knows if they were able to actually ever recover, um, so, yeah, this is just my family's experience, um, I'm not advocating for you to go talk to your Japanese-American friends and about their family experiences, because that is really, really prying and very kind of rude, but, um, yeah, like if that, that just keep in mind that this is just one person's experience and or one family's experience not universal um, and the last thing that I will leave you guys with is um, another piece of learning um, and luckily I haven't heard this slur used in in sort of the I guess popular vocabulary um, at least in terms of what it used to mean but so the slur jap um was used to refer to Japanese Americans. Um it is not acceptable to use. Japanese Americans have made no attempt to reclaim it. So do not use that. I know right now it currently mean it's currently used, especially like more on the East Coast, to mean Jewish American princess, which like that's still anti-Semitic. It's not a win, so don't use the term. Like there are plenty of other words that you can use to describe entitled white people. Um, like, right now, you know, assuming that these Jewish people who are rich and behave in an entitled manner, those probably, those folks are probably white, um, and so there are ways that you can describe them other than calling them a slur. Um, so with that, I will leave you guys, um... Thank you once again for subscribing, thank you very much for your support, and I hope to talk to you guys about um, actual like pop culture stuff again soon. Thanks for listening, bye.